Jaime did a good job in leading us in worship. <laughs> Who needs Mike and that other girl that sings over there? Wherever they are, they can stay. We don't care. They're in North Carolina. They'll be back. <laughs> uh, this morning we're in Revelation chapter 14. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 7. Uh, just a little update. Chapter 11, we had the two witnesses of God in Jerusalem. They're killed and then they're resurrected. In chapter 12, Satan wars with Michael. Satan loses that war and he's cast out of heaven. Only to be, you know, to severely persecute Israel then. And then in chapter 13, we have a beast that rises out of the sea. It's the Antichrist. And he's given authority by Satan to form a religious political system. A ten-nation confederation with seven prominent leaders. It's interesting that our president was in Europe this week, and he was at a G20 economic conference. Look for that 20 to be reduced to 10. And then you can say, <laughs> our redemption draws nigh. But the major leader, the Antichrist, will he will recover from a severe head wound, probably from an assassination attempt upon him, and the whole world will look upon this as a miracle. This miraculous recovery deceives the people, and they're so deceived that they begin to worship the Antichrist. And that happens to be the desires of Satan, by the way. His constant... Uh, task is to wrestle away from God the worship of mankind, God's creation. God who created angels and mankind, and he created us with a free will. And part of that free will is we have the ability to choose whom we will worship. Now remember that one-third of the angels followed Satan in his rebellious fall. A third of the heavenly host followed Satan. And we talked about how could these angels that are in the presence of God, how could they be deceived to follow Satan? Well, he's the master deceiver. And yet mankind full of pride, thinks he can resist Satan through his intellect. And that's usually in Christian circles that that goes on. And some Christians believe that they are immune to Satan's schemes with their doctrine beliefs, or perhaps the creeds that they repeat over and again, or by attending the right church. And I'm going to give you a shocker here. Attending Calvary Chapel only gives you great fellowship and opportunity to study God's Word and apply God's Word 
it doesn't give you immunity to being deceived. I know that surprises some. Well, you you got to live with it. No church can give us a guarantee against the evil plots and devices of Satan. Every believer must make a conscious decision for themselves who do I serve and who or whom will I worship? Will I abide with Christ and daily walk in the Spirit or will I not? Will God by His Spirit saves and protects each and every one of us, but He doesn't save churches, He doesn't save groups, He saves individuals. And I don't care what position you may hold in a church or in life itself, you must abide in Christ to have a victorious Christian life. Being a true Christian is a one-on-one endeavor. We serve a personal God. Satan not only deceived his fellow angels back when he was, uh, you know, fallen, but much of mankind is deceived by him. Now, think with me here. We're probably in the most Christianized area of the world right here. The United States, many consider still a Christian nation. And we reside in the South. We happen to be the belt buckle of the Bible belt here. Yet, think with me, how many people do you work with? How many people do you associate with? How many acquaintances do you have? How many friends that are really true believers in Jesus? Here you are, right in the most Christianized area of the world. How many of your friends truly have a walk with the Lord? Our Lord said, you're either for me or against me. There is no neutral ground with God. Now, consider the Islamic world for a moment. It really doesn't matter if you are against them. You are their enemy if you are not a Muslim. They are against you if you're not a Muslim. In fact, they call us infidels. You know, we're the great Satan. Israel is the lesser Satan or the little Satan. And here's the rub. Here's the, here's the deception. Those that are deceived have no clue that they are deceived. Otherwise, we might call them different names like rebellious or foolhardy or something like that. We wouldn't call them the deceived. And we hear people say things like, well, I don't go to church. I'm not religious. And I don't worship anything that includes God that I'm not even sure exists. That person happens to worship their own intellect. In chapter 13, 
we see the whole purpose of the false prophet that, that sings the praises of the Antichrist, and that is to direct worship away from God and away from Jesus to this unholy trinity or the Antichrist. The loyalty and the devotion of man's heart is the battleground for worship. Whether that worship be worshiping our God who is good or Satan who is evil. It's one or the other. So let's read Revelation 14 verses 1 through 7. Then I looked and behold a lamb standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder, and I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruit to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made the heaven and the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Verses 1 through 3, we see, or John sees, rather, what every good Jew throughout their entire history wants and desires to see. They see their Messiah, their King, and He's standing in Jerusalem on Mount Zion, and He has returned, and He has returned to rule and to reign, and that delights the heart of any Jew. The prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah, they proclaim Messiah, and they proclaim that He will come and He will stand on Mount Zion with those who belong to Him. These that belong to Him are with Jesus. They are the 144 male virgin Jews, not defiled by women. Now, I read one commentator, and I'll I'll throw this out there. I don't agree with it, but it's got some possibilities. <laughs> Perhaps their virginity speaks of being true to God in their worship, not being pulled away, not having followed a satanic, idolatrous worship. And to that I say, perhaps, <laughs> maybe, that's one take on it. I don't take it that way. And... Many believe the beast and their religious system will include sexual promiscuity. Well, that has gone on throughout the ages. 
the many false religions, past and present, include sexual acts in their worship. These 144,000 Jews, they're witnesses. They are a witness to the whole world of God's ability to keep and protect his own. In chapter 13, power was given to the Antichrist to make war with the tribulation saints and overcome them. But this 144,000 Jewish witnesses for God are with Jesus, and they're present there with him, and they're all present and accounted for. Not one is missing. It shows God's strength and ability to keep his own. These witnesses, they come on the scene at the beginning of the tribulation period. and But now here we are. We fast forwarded to the end of the tribulation and they are present with Jesus at the end of all the death and destruction that has gone on in the great tribulation. That should speak volumes to our heart. I take comfort in that. The best life insurance policy available to any Christian is doing God's will. And you don't have to worry about being cared for, your daily substance, or suffering death. You may die, but you die in the will of God. There is a real truth when our godly usefulness is complete, God takes us home. When you're finished, God will take you home and you don't have to worry about it. These 144,000 have lived up to their namesake. Witnesses for Jesus, their Messiah. And they have been witnesses. So you and I, if we're still here, we're still around, guess what? God isn't finished with us yet. And that's sort of good to know. <laughs> that I haven't missed it. That God is still working with me. But death of this physical body is not a sorrowful end. It's a glorious change of addresses. Jesus was very clear when he told us, you want to gain life? Lay down your life. And that is contrary. That is completely opposite of the world's attitude that seeks to preserve life at any cost. When a Christian dies upon our physical death, we mourn the loss of that life. But it is not the demise of a believer that we mourn for. It's our loss that we mourn. Our physical death is simply a glorious homecoming. We get to go and be with our Lord. Then we look at verses 4 and 5, and we have a description of this 144,000. They are the redeemed, the first fruits of God, and of the Lamb. Can you think of a better thing to have said of you? That you're the first fruits of God and of the Lamb? That's, that's a great thing to have said. The 144,000 
and anyone who is redeemed, you and I, any of us, we're a treasure unto God. You have to let that soak in for a second. Because if you're anything like me, I consider myself a liability, not a treasure. <laughs> well, you know, God sort of loves me and he puts up with me. I don't look upon myself as a treasure unto God. But that's what Jesus said of us. We are a treasure. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are a pleasure. We are a value to our Lord and Jesus. We are, as Ephesians says, a work of beauty. We are a poema, Hebrew word, and all it means is poem. We are a beautiful poem which is being written. Ephesians 2.10 For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God pre prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The word for work is poem. We are a poem being written. Our lives are writing out a poem unto the Lord. That is being a treasure to Him. But our greatest reward is to be with our Savior, like the 144,000. Then beginning in verse 6, we have three angels that come on the scene. And we looked, we will look only at the first angel today. But these angels make no attempt to appear or take on man-like characteristics. Oftentimes in Scripture, when we read of angels, they appeared as men. And I guess that was so they wouldn't scare us to death, you know. <laughs> But God has chosen for the most part to allow us, mankind, He allows us to be His evangelist, proclaiming the good news of salvation. But God isn't limited to that. Sometimes we think God is limited to using man. He isn't. Uh, he now has an angel flying through the heavens, making the good news of the gospel known to everyone that dwells on earth. One of those ways that God uses is we hear of many Muslims now coming to believe in Jesus through personal dreams of Jesus. That's totally a God thing. That's totally a separate from man. <clears throat> Years ago, I was watching TV, and I heard a TV evangelist, and he spoke about his own ministry, and he spoke about his ministry being a ministry that stood between God and man. He alone stood in that gap. He was the only one prepared by God to carry the good news to many different peoples of the world. There was only one problem with this. Scandal soon 
surrounded his ministry. And he was off the air in a short period of time. And I'm thinking, poor God. He's stumped again by one man's unfaithfulness. Never, my friend. (laughs) Never. Did I say never? Never has God been stumped by the unfaithfulness of one man or a group of men for that matter. There was one man, he was a prophet, and he complained to God, I alone am left as your servant. You only have me, God. I'm it. Then God showed Elijah that he had 7,000 men waiting to replace him. That's a little humbling. (laughs) I got 7,000 waiting to take your place, Elijah. Our God, during the Great Tribulation period, uses several methods to spread the gospel. We've had the two witnesses there in Jerusalem, walking about, given the ability to, uh, for fire to go out their mouth and consume their enemies, being a, a supernatural witness for God. We also have this 144,000 Jewish male virgins that are on the scene. And you, you know they're evangelizing. These are a couple of the methods God uses. Now we have an angel flying through heavens, the midst of the heavens, and he's not disguising himself as a man. He's not coming in the image of a man. He's an angel. And he makes no pretense to be a man or the likeness of a man. There happens to be a couple of TV networks using satellites named Angel. There's Angel 1 and there's Sky Angel. Show you the way I think. Are they trying to authenticate their ministry by claiming to be the angel as in verse 6? All I can tell you is I would be very reluctant to do that. I would be very reluctant to use a particular passage or scripture like this one claiming to be angelic. I'm the method God is using. I don't think I could bring myself to say that. But on the other hand, we have different pastors or ministers today who claim to be apostles. I can tell you I wouldn't use that one either. (laughs) I wonder where their fear of God is, you know? Uh, anyway, you, that's just something I have to work through. But anyway, the angel that John sees, he has a threefold message for mankind. Fear God and give him glory. God's judgment has come and worship God who made the heavens and the earth. The threefold message. And this is an angelic message from earthly ministries separating itself from ministries that are here on earth already. This angel 
says, fear God. Now, there's a sermon in that simple statement, fear God. And I'm not going to take time to point out all the trends that I see in the church that prevail in the church today. But one of the trends, and you probably got your own, that bothers me is the attempt by man, by Christians, to lower the status of God. There's a definite movement by some, and excuse me here, not meaning to offend, but what I call touchy-feely Christians, to make Jesus their buddy or their best pal. Taking friendship with Jesus for me over the edge. All I would say to a person like that, don't gather your theology from Christian songs or Christian radio stations which may or may not be accurate. There is this prevailing image of God going forth and it goes something like this. We all sin. We all fall short. We are all created with flaws. We can't help ourselves. We have a fallen nature. And there is an element of truth in each and every one of those statements. And we do fall short. But what has God called us to? Now, some of you may think I put Neil up to his prayer this morning. Neil, I didn't, I didn't get in cahoots with you. Neil prayed about being holy, and I thought, it only fits. I'm going to talk about being holy, all right? Time and again, we hear God say, be holy, for I am holy. There it is. He didn't say have a little sin and work through it. He said, be holy. We have, my Christian friends, a holy calling upon our lives. We are to be separated to Christ. The Apostle Paul, he goes through a list of sins that are never to be named among believers. And that's in 2 Timothy chapter 3, 1 through 5. I'll read it for you. But know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. You might say we're there. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. And from such people turn away. What a list. The fear of God will cause me to turn away from such sins. Not to make excuses for them. Fear of God keeps man as servant and it keeps God on his throne. I never 
can bridge that gap. He is God. I am servant. I'm not his best buddy to hang around with. Not his chum to play video games with. And if I drive and ride a Harley, I don't assume that he rode a Harley. You know what I'm saying? God is God. I don't make him into my image. He converts me into his image. I'm done now. I'm off my little bandwagon. The next message of this angel is God's judgment has come. Now, you can't say that at any time you please. For instance, Katrina, the hurricane that hit the Gulf Coast, was it of God? Was it his judgment or not? We do not know. We know a lot of people got saved because of Katrina. But we can't say for sure that that was God's judgment. We simply do not know. But when you're in the last half of the Great Tribulation, you can say God's judgment has come because the Tribulation period is a time of God's judgment. And that is very clear in Scripture. You can say it with conviction. And you can say it's a time of God's judgment upon unbelieving mankind. The final message of the angel, this first angel, is worship God. Not the false prophet, the beast, not the Antichrist, and for sure not the dragon, but worship God. Worship the one who created the heavens and the earth, the sea and the springs of water. Now, that's a little unusual that it throws in there, springs of water, because um, we have seen the fresh water supply on earth as being one of the areas that God has sent his plague upon. He's turned them into blood or turned them to red. And so fresh water has become a precious commodity at the end or the latter half of the tribulation. God had has his angel telling mankind around the world, worship God as creator. Have you heard of random, fortuitous chance? They happen to be lies of science that offend God. Random, fortuitous chance are man's attempt to avoid God's word and the responsibility of God's word that declares God is creator and worship him. So how do I work around worshiping God, my creator? I say, well, random, fortuitous chance. Given enough time and given enough opportunity, it may take billions and billions of years, this could happen. No, it couldn't. That's a lie. Plain and simple. Science and evolution constantly call God a liar. It's taught in our schools. God declares in His Word time and again He is the Creator. 
of the heavens, the earth, mankind, springs of water. He's the creator of all. In my humble opinion, man's history is about wrapped up here on earth. If we're not in the end times, then I don't, I'm just totally wrong. Because everything I see points to us being at the verge of our Lord's return. We are fast approaching the day of God's judgment upon this world. So what are we to do? Well, you don't have to be one of the 144,000 to be a witness unto God. We're called to be a witness. We're called to spread the good news. We're called to be salt and light. We are to speak forth the truth. And it may offend. We don't have to be offensive, but we are to speak the truth. There used to be a saying in the church that circulated in the church, and I really liked it. It was get right or get left. Left behind, that is. <laughs> and I really, that for whatever reason appealed to my little mind. Get right or get left. And there it is. We have that opportunity today to repent, to turn from our sins towards God. That is a beautiful blessing. Repentance is good. We are allowed to repent. We do not have to continue down a road of sin. So as we work our way through the book of Revelation, chapter 14, it's kind of a little break in there between all the plagues and death and destruction where we're told, worship God, turn to God. And I pray that we will all do that with all our hearts. Let me get you to stand. We'll close in prayer. Father, first off, we want to just openly declare we worship you, our God and our creator. We thank you for Jesus, co-creator. You tell us that he was there from the beginning as our creator also. And we thank you, Lord, that we're not evolving from some ape-like creature or whatever, Lord, but you carefully and wonderfully made us. You formed us in our mother's womb. And we're not just a fortuitous chance that worked out good. Thank you for creating us in your image, Lord. And thank you, Lord, for putting in our hearts the truth of yourself, that we can turn to you this morning and gladly worship you as our Lord and as our God. And we do that. We worship you. And, Lord, we would pray that we would be faithful to you as a good witness. For everyone that's been born again, everyone that's accepted you as their Lord and Savior, has a testimony. Let us be quick to share the testimony of what you have done in our own lives 
So give us boldness by your spirit. And we thank you again for creating us and we worship you. And we praise and thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.